Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. We just watched Stage 17, the Queen stage of the Tour de France this year. Not a lot of movement on GC. But a lot of action on GC. There was still a fair bit of movement. It was actually better than I expected this stage. Just as a reminder of what the profile looked like, it was pancake flat for, oh, I don't know, about 88 kilometers. There was an intermediate sprint with 45.45 k's into the stage. There was a, a short climb before then, um, but not very steep. We didn't think that would bother Bennett and co. And then there's the first climb of the day was the HC climb Col de la Madeleine, which is often one of the, the hardest climb in a mountain stage, but it wasn't today. Then a descent, and then a short valley, and then they started the beast, the the longest, the hardest, the highest climb of this year's Tour de France, the Col de la Lose, recently repaved some batshit crazy steep pinches in this in the last five kilometers. We'll get to them when we say what's happening at the end of the stage. 20Ks at 7.5% up to about 2,300 metres, but that really belies how difficult that last five kilometres is, um, which, yeah, average, I think, about over over 10%, but with some, like, flat sections in it as well. So that was the stage. Bernal, the big news before the day started. Once again, Ineos releasing that news before, like, very early in European time, Bernal was not starting the stage. Uh, they didn't really say why. We, he said to journalists yesterday his back was playing up, so who knows. But he's recalibrating for the rest of the season, to use their language, and I presume that means taking a tilt at the Vuelta as co-leader with Chris Froome. But how did this stage start, Benji? Was it a fierce fight for the break or a bit different to previous days? Yeah, a fierce start for the breakaway once again because we had so many attacks, as always, but it was different because at the start I thought a larger group would go away. It certainly looked like that, but in the end, that was not the case. We had like a group of 30 split, but that came back together quite easily after the Jumbo Riders kind of said no to that. And eventually, some six riders got away. Julien Alaphilippe for DQS, the Gunning. We had Dan Martin for Israel Startup Nation. Horka Izagere for Astana. Leonard Kemna, the winner of yesterday, the People's Champion for Bora. Carapaz for Ineos, so once again, the couple of yesterday, Kevna and Carapaz, and also Alaphilippe, to be honest, also yesterday. And then we had one rider that was right in between, but pretty much got called by the peloton afterwards, and that is MP. He never really caught up with the front five riders. And that is the situation of the breakaway in this stage. We had those five riders, and when they were gone, it was decided that they had a gap of around six minutes max, because in the peloton, we saw that, first of all, the intermediate sprint was prepared, but after that, Jumbo took over a bit. In regards to the intermediate sprint, it's simple. Bennett was still there, and if Bennett is still there, then Merku is still there. And if Merku is still there, then Bennett takes the full points that are left. Merku gets second, and Sagan gets tricked into third. Well, this time, we did see that Sagan beat Trenton, so I guess he got a point on Trenton, but he didn't gain any points on Bennett, so he's not getting any closer on this stage. Bennett gained two points on him. For the classification of green, that doesn't change much. It just expands the lead of Bennett a tiny bit. So in total, Bennett is now on 278, Sagan on 231, and Trenton is in third on 218. And that's going to matter most on stage 19, I think. But we're not going to dive back into stage 19 until we uh, dive into stage 18 at the end of this episode. Anyway, in regards to that breakaway, they went up the first column of the day to call La Madeleine with about I think it was five minutes advantage or something on a peloton that was led by Jumbo. And on the climb, we saw that in the peloton, well, one team came forward that I did not expect to come forward, and that was Landa's team, Bahrain Merida, McLaren. <laughs> I always get it wrong. <laughs> so what do you think the plan was for Landa? Well, it was a shame for the breakaway, and like Leonard Kemner was in there, but he dropped pretty quickly on Col de la Madeleine, uh, presumably with tired legs from yesterday. Carapaz was powering away. 
I, I don't know why they were all there. I think maybe some of them were trying to get some KOM points. I think Carapaz was there genuinely for the stage. Um, but yeah, Izaguirre, I think, was there as a satellite rider for Miguel Angel Lopez on if he could make it to Col de la Loz. So, but they worked pretty well for the time being on Madeleine. But yeah, in the peloton, fantastic work from Bahrain McLaren today as a team. Um, I guess apart from Landa, the their plan was to make this. Okay, let me, let me take us back a step and explain how like a proper mountain stage like this works. When you've got a sixteen kilometer long climb like Madeleine, which is over uh, over forty five minutes climbing, and then there's not too much of a valley, and then they go straight into an hour long test, an hour plus test on Col de la Loz. The it's a it's a transition from what we've seen in the previous stages where it's like just above threshold or at threshold and then the GC riders have a big anaerobic burst at the end of the stage. This today, Byron McLaren wanted to make this a real threshold test for the entirety of the stage and to try and tire out the TGV TJV domestiques and all the other GC riders. I, th- I think their priority was really to put riders like Port, Mass. Miguel Angel Lopez, um, Uran Yates under pressure so that it wasn't just... Because otherwise, Jumbo Visma would have just paced, I think, with Hessink on this climb at like 5.9, maybe less, probably less even, 5.8. And there was other teams still would have had domestiques there because, yeah, Jumbo Visma would, wouldn't really care too much about bringing the break back too quickly. They probably assumed they were going to do it anyway. And, yeah, they wouldn't be putting themselves into difficulty or the other riders. So, yeah, Byron McLaren wanted to make it harder with the their theory being that, and I'm just speculating, obviously, why they did this, but this is sort of Dr. Ferrari explains this because there's a lot of Giro stages often look like this, particularly the uh, Fenestra stage. So it explains this in articles about why riders set hard pace in the Fenestra stages when like Savile Deli was under pressure in the mid-2000s. But, yeah. Lander was supposed to be like better aerobically and at threshold than the other riders on GC contention or competing for the third position on GC. Uh, you look throughout his career, he's never won a one-day race, but he's a really good climber. I think of him as a high-tempo climber. I know he attacks in the drops, etc., but I'm not sure it's that many watts. I think he's, yeah, you look at Mortarola 2015, one of his better performances, even though it didn't amount to too much, he's still... You know, that's the sort of stage I think Byron McLaren were trying to make it into. And, yeah, so that's why they were pacing on the front, that very long explanation, which was full credit to them because no other team has really been able to take it up that successfully in this year's Tour de France. Not even Ineos were able to. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong, Benji, but no, nothing really happened on Col de la Madeleine. And you wouldn't expect it that too either. What you What is happening, you don't see, which is the energy and calorie depletion, and then there's a fierce scramble to try and get those back in before the cold that I lose. Um, but, yeah, did, did anyone get dropped? And, and what was the gap for the breakaway actually over the top of the Madeleine? Because they didn't catch them. Firstly, regarding to people that dropped, I don't think anyone important except for the guys that we were worrying about regarding potentially landing out of time. So, for example, you and a Bennett, those guys were off the back of car and so forth. But we'll go back into that a bit later on in the episode actually happened regarding the breakaway. I think there was a gap of two minutes to 30 somewhat at the top. So they went into that downhill with Alaphilippe, Carapaz and Jorge Izaguirre together. And well, depending on their town, yeah, Dan Martin as well. Yeah, let's talk about that. He uh, he did a bit of a Zakara, I think, because I know from history and from all the rest of the races that he's been in in the Giros that he rode and I think the Tour as well, that he always is about at the back of the group and loses well, gaps in downhills, but today it was like he didn't dare to go down. I'm not sure what was the reason, but it's like 10 times worse than what I've seen him do in the past. So his descent was horrible and it wasn't necessarily technique or anything. It was just that he didn't dare to go hard at all. He might have another reason, I don't know, but it looked like he didn't dare to go hard and he basically dropped from the front group to the peloton. So it's pretty sad for the for Dan Martin here. I know he's been suffering from an injury in his foot or something in the last two weeks, so that's why he wasn't great at the start of the Tour de France. But still, 
I hoped he could do something, well, a bit more than just dropping in the downhill because that's just a bit lame, you know. Nonetheless, for the other breakaway riders, we had Alaphilippe, who was obviously, he's a good descender, but his technique is not always great in the sense that he doesn't always get his apex right in the corners. And that's how he didn't get away because he was gone for a second. And with cornering, Jorge Izaguirre was able to get back. Now, I didn't know Jorge Izaguirre was this decent at downhilling, at descending. We saw his brother, Yoni Izaguirre, win a stage in the Tour de France against Nibali once in a descend, in a wet descend. But I didn't know the whole family had these genes. But, well, he was able to follow pretty well. And they pretty much all three landed at the bottom of the descent with in total a gap of two minutes left on the group so they didn't lose anything they didn't gain anything in that descent so they were heading towards Corlalos with a mere two minutes so that was a uh, not looking too great for the breakaway. Izaguirre was very irritated with Alaphilippe throughout this this breakaway because Alaphilippe like what's the point in attacking on a descent before a 20 kilometer HC climb where if you have, if you want to have any chance of winning the stage, you have to work together until the last five kilometer steep part. Like, absolutely brain dead from Alphalie. Really irritating. We'll speak about why the reward system for that behavior is kind of warped in the Tour de France later. Uh, but yeah, Izagiri, I, I think, gave him a serve either on the descent or on the climb because on the climb, Alphalie attacked them as well, but like not a real attack. And then they close it down and. Izaguirre was like, why you do this? What is the point in what you're doing? You're sabotaging this breakaway. And yeah, I guess we saw once again that efficient descending is quicker. Someone who, you know, Alaphilippe's thrashing about the road on the descent, but someone who's one of the quickest descenders in the world was leading the peloton behind him and incredibly smooth. Mohoric on the front for Barra and McLaren. We already know how good a descender he is. One of the man, you know, one of the people that pioneered the super tuck actually back in, or what was it, under 23 or junior world champs in 2013. He got told to slow down on the descent, I think, by Caruso or, um, yeah, yeah, I think it was Caruso because he was gapping Lander and Caruso and half the other, all the riders in the peloton because, and he wasn't even going full gas. He was going, I think he was going well within his limits, but he's just, Corner, stop pedaling, two hard pedal strokes, next corner, duck shoulder, just hit the right line every time, a little bit of a bigger rider, just magic to see Mohoric. And it would have been awesome to see him in, actually in full flight on that descent. So goes to show that, yeah, I am not. A, I think Alaphilippe being the best descender in the world is uh, that's fake news, but we've spoken about that, I think, before. We knew the breakaway was doomed. Well, we thought it was doomed because of the way Byron McLaren were riding. They continued riding in the valley, actually, so it was interesting. It was the first time in this year's tour where Jumbo Visma were kind of given given the day off for two-thirds of the day where they were in the valley and they didn't really have to do anything. And were you surprised, Benji, that Bahrain were pacing in the valley as well? I would have expected Jumbo to do it with Vinod instead, but it's not the longest valley. I think it's about 9 to uh, 10 kilometers in between there with a bit of an uphill section already before the Col de Los. So it wasn't only the fact that they had to go on the Côte de la Loz, but also that small hill just before it. So I think in general, they just wanted to control the race and, well, get Landa into a position for Côte de la Loz. But yeah, I, I'm not sure who would have done it otherwise. Jumbo, maybe, but they've had the day off so far. So maybe they were like, well, we don't care about who wins in the breakaway. So we're not going to pace too much on this flat. So maybe Landa just wanted to keep up the pressure a bit on that plateau section. Yeah, sure. And... Going into the, the bottom of that climb, there were still all the GC contenders there. As a reminder, it was Roglic wearing yellow, Pagacha second, Uran third, and Uran had, biting at his heels, Lopez Yates, Port, and Landa for that third position. Um, and that's why I thought Bahrain were pacing today to put those those other riders under pressure for, for that third position. Bahrain then kept riding and kept pulling. They did a really good job with, uh, yeah, Wapols on the front. Mohoric pulled just before him. Poles increased the pace. And then it was really, it, people were saying, oh, well, what are they doing? Nothing's really happening. But this is different to those climbs, those shorter climbs where maybe in the Pyrenees where 
Yumbo Visma just light it up and it's a 20-minute effort. This is a whole different ball game, these hour-long climbs. It's one hour for the winner of the stage. So it's a whole different ball game. It's more a battle of attrition and wearing people down so that I compared it, I think, to a marathon where in a marathon you might see nothing really happening for quite a while and then if they're racing 205 pace, It'll come down to the last, say, six or seven kilometers, and then suddenly just half the pack disappears, even though they don't increase the pace at all. That's what I compare these sort of climbs to because it is a one-hour effort. It's a similar length of time, similar physiological requirements. And, yeah, Peo Bilbao was doing that. He was really putting the herd on. I think he was doing 1,600 VAM, maybe even higher for sections, 1680 VAM for pass as well, for sustained periods. You could see visibly in the bunch the the exertion on the riders' faces changed with everybody. Domestique started going out the back door, and this is with quite a few Ks to go on the climb, by the way, like 7 or 8 Ks to go on the climb. Kenny Alessandro was gone. Harold Tejada was gone. Izagira, I think, was caught The um, from the breakaway, who was supposed to be there as a satellite for... Lopez maybe, so fantastic work by Pedro Bilbao. Up the road, I think Carapaz had gotten sick of Alaphilippe who'd attacked him and just gone on his own and Carapaz had about a 30-second advantage because the chase from Bahrain had really eaten into it. And then who was the last man for Bahrain? Benji. It was Damiano Caruso. And the thing about Caruso is that we've seen so far in this Tour de France and in his history that it's one that keeps growing. He's close to top 13-ish, I think, in GC. He hasn't lost too much time. I think he was on nine minutes starting into this stage, which is quite great for a rider that is not necessarily going for GC and is basically a domestique for Landa in this Tour de France. Caruso's pace was not the hardest, but I think he upped it a bit the moment that Bilbao went out the front and then the tempo got down again. I think it was because we hit those steeper sections and Bahrain was unsure whether... They needed to really control it at that point and be the guidance towards the uh, favorites group. So, yeah, that's basically my take on it. Yeah, people were under pressure. Dumoulin looked pretty, un- he looked a fair bit under pressure. Even Pogaccia was kind of, I don't know, he looked different today, Pogaccia. We thought he was going to, he just looked a bit different, looked a bit more under pressure, less composed. Uh, <clears throat> um, like Port was sliding up and stealing the wheel of Coos and Roglic off him. Miguel Angel Lopez looked pretty good. Adam Yates was at this point, kind of yo-yoing off the back. And then David de la Cruz, back from the dead, came from the back of the group, went to the front. Obviously, UAE weren't happy with the Caruso pace. The They were just getting onto the five-kilometre, I think, to go section, or maybe a little bit less than that where it gets properly steep. And Carapaz still had about a 30 to 35-second lead. He was motoring, by the way. He looked incredible, Carapaz, for... Have, you know, considering that he's been in the break in two days in a row, back-to-back breaks, to be doing that up to altitude, really, really strong ride from Carapaz. But, yeah, De La Cruz did this hard, short lead-out, I think, for Pagacha, but it split the group. It did split the group, and I think it dropped, it dropped Landa. So Landa didn't even get a chance to attack today at all. He got gapped immediately. Yates gapped. Uran gapped. And then I think either, I'm not even sure Pagacha attacked Benji. It's hard to say. It's hard when it's like 18% gradient to see whether people are attacking because everyone's moving so slowly, but a speed differential of three kilometers an hour is actually a massive watts difference at like 17, 18% gradients. I think then Koos went to the front. Koos looked unbelievable today. He started pacing with Roglic on his wheel. Port was there. Pogaccio was there as well as Lopez, but it was only for a brief time. And then there was the Miguel Angel Lopez, attacker to Superman Lopez around those guys. And yeah, really strong from Miguel Angel Lopez. We thought he was going to try something today. And yeah, I've forgotten who closed him down, Benji, because it really fell on port to close him down or maybe Pogaccio because he wasn't that far behind Pogaccio. Yeah, it was Pogaccio that closed down the gap to that first Lopez attack. And it went quite easily, so I was unsure whether Lopez still had anything left for a second attack, but Lopez didn't look too bothered after the attack. 
Roglic directly jumped on the wheel of Pogacar. Cuz went to the back of the group a bit. I'm not sure if he was able to follow at that point, but he looked pretty okay. And let's be honest, we saw a bit later on that Cuz was still pretty much ready. He definitely still had something in the tank. They brought him back. Port was looking pretty much on the limit. And this, this is an undulating climb in the last 5Ks. They catch Carapaz, I think, with oh, 3Ks to go or so, um, maybe a little bit more. And then they fan out. So it's Kus, Pogacar, Roglic, Lopez, Port just a little bit off the back, trying to gain back uh, those ten, maybe 10 metres to them. And then Yumbo Visma, like we said they should the other day, Benji, they send Kus up the road. Um, maybe as a launch pad for Roglic. I think it was for the stage win, honestly. I think they discussed it. You go and see what happens. See if Pagacha tries to shut you down. And Pagacha didn't. And there's no reason for Pagacha shutting him down. And I think this is actually quite different to stage 15 because this is with three kilometers to go. And it's a big effort for Pagacha to shut that down. Whereas I think in the heat of the sprint on stage 15 the other day with the stage win right there in the last 800 metres or something, I think Pogacar would have tried to close Koos down. Um, but nothing happened. They, he got a fair gap straight away. And then Miguel Angel Lopez shot up the middle of the two Slovenians across to Sep Koos, closed it down really quickly. And then, well, it was interesting. I was just thinking in my head, okay, well, does Koos work with Lopez? Because Lopez isn't is quite a bit back on Roglic in the it in the uh, general classification, and even if they were even at the end of the stage, well, <laughs> Roglic is going to dust him off in the TT. So nothing to worry about. Even if he does gain back, what was it maybe two minutes behind on GC or a minute thirty at best, and then if Kuz sits on Lopez and maybe helps him a little bit, then he can try and beat him for stage win. That didn't happen, and Yumbo Visma, I think didn't really have to make that choice because Koos didn't wasn't able to hold the wheel of Lopez from what I saw. There were some really steep pinches. Lopez was gapping him, uh, putting maybe two metres into him in those pinches. And I think Koos made the really, really mature and smart decision to drop back to Roglic. I think he knew, I can't, I'm not going to beat this guy on this stage. and But I do have something left in the legs. I'm not empty yet. I'll drop back and help Roglic. Richie Port, I think, was battling and had, with the two Slovenians slowing down, had clawed his way back to those two. But then Kuz came back to Roglic and there was a steep pinch. Roglic used him as a springboard, I think. And then there were these flatter sections where they could get up to like 30Ks an hour, maybe a little bit quicker as well. And I don't know how long Kuz pulled him for because the cameras were all over the place at this point. But then... That launched Primoz Roglic, um, and he got a good gap on Tadej Pogacar. And, yeah, what did you say to me after the stage, Benji? If he does something like that, he does deserve to win the Tour de France. Yes, exactly, and that's because we've never seen a real offensive Roglic. Even last year in the Vuelta, he was always with somebody. He never dropped everybody. And today, well, he had to let go of Lopez, but that doesn't matter for his GC. So the only person he had to really roll about with is Pogacar and he got a gap of I think 10 to 15 seconds on him max at that point Lopez was up the road he had a solid 15 seconds as well the gap to Lopez was larger than the one to Pogacar but in general the gaps weren't huge and it basically kept on rising the road 20% basically to the finish 16 to 20 percent and with every corner, you would think, well, it's going to become a bit less steep at this moment because the finish right there. But that was not the case. Every corner, you would turn around the corner on a better grading and then you would see another ramp to go up. So it's a crazy finish, honestly. And the gaps started variating. We had Roglic take a bit more of a gap to 20-ish seconds. And then suddenly, Bogacha found second life. And he bridged back up a bit. And there was a certain point where I was like, well, he's actually making it back. Bogacar is making a comeback. Oh my god. And that's still with like 1.8 kilometers to go. It's such a good finish for this. He came so close. I think up to like 2 to 3 meters off Roglic's wheel on one of those ramps. 
And he started braking once again. You would see him riding from left to right on the road to try and close the gap. And he just broke during that moment. And Roglic got away again because Roglic was keeping a tempo that he could sustain while Pogacar was trying to hopelessly close the gap. And it basically blew him up at that second because the gap went straight up to 10 seconds after that little ramp. Lopez still up the road, 15 to 20 seconds. And yeah, Lopez was off for a stage victory and it was close to the line, but Miguel Angel Lopez, Superman, took the stage on Code La What a wonderful attack. The right moment took us, use him as a springboard, but you basically say that Roglic was going to use, well, used Cas as a springboard, but Lopez pretty much did the same, to be honest. He launched towards him and flew over him the moment that Cas was cracking. And Pogacar, well, he never really got any close to Roglic from about a kilometer from the finish. So in the end, Roglic takes time once again on Pogacar. But this time around, it was because Roglic was just the better climber today. It's one of those climbs where I was just oscillating between what I was thinking, or vacillating, I think might be the correct word, between what, what I thought was going to happen from one second to the next. Because of because the climb is so steep, it the gaps between the riders on the road are not long and you think that maybe they're, they're about to close it down at any moment and you can't see with the helicopter shot what the gradient looks like in a particular section of the road. So they might be 15 metres behind the other rider, but if they're on a 20% wall, that's that's like nine seconds. That's probably really not the correct maths, but you get what I'm saying. And to Benji's point about Roglic riding smoother, I think that is 100% correct. Every time there was a flatter section, I felt like, now maybe this is a visual, you know, uh, illusion, but I did feel like Roglic, he closed that gap to maybe seven seconds to Lopez when there were a couple of flatter sections. And then when it got to the steep pinches, and this is what did for Coos as well, Lopez absolutely punished the steep, the really steep pinches. And then he, he was able to extend that gap. And I think the same was happening for Pogaccio. I think Pogaccio was closing the gap and going full on all the steep pinches. But then you know, anyone that listens to the pod that probably that rides their bike knows you get over a pinch. If you're cooked, it's it's so much harder almost to be able to put down power to get back up to speed. Whereas you, if you, even if you are cooked, you can kind of use the gradient to put out, um, to help you put out the watts. Whereas yeah, Robert seemed to be riding steady. I thought Pogaccio was going to come back to him. There was actually a moment where I thought Pogaccio was going to gain time on Roglic and Roglic was cracking um, just because of how it looked on the shot with Pogaccio coming back to him. But it was clear that, yeah, Roglic was just riding smoother. He, I think, finished the stage. What was it? Let me check. He was 15 seconds behind Miguel Angel Lopez at the line. So he held that gap pretty well. Tari Pogaccio was 30 seconds behind Lopez, 15 seconds behind Roglic. Awesome effort from Tade Pagacha to actually like conserve that amount of time. Like he could have lost a lot more actually. Sepkus fourth on the stage, 56 seconds back. He still beat Port to the line. Port was a minute back. Onrik Maas, maybe maybe one of the best rides of his career, honestly. He came sixth on the stage, a minute twelve back. Lander seventh, a minute twenty back, same time as Yates, without Lander not having attacked. Uran ninth, two minutes back, and Tom Dumoulin. 10th, 2 minutes 13 back. And Alejandro Valverde was actually the next of the GC riders, 12th, 2 minutes and 48 back. But uh, yeah, there's bonus seconds on the line, obviously for Lopez and Roglic and a couple for Pagaccia as well, I think. And if, if Pagaccia was going to gain time and Roglic was going to crack, today's stage was probably going to be was going to be the one. Um, it's, yeah, incredible from Roglic. I don't really – that was the last question mark for me was his ability to put out Monster VAM for one hour, one hour, five minutes, and he certainly proved that today. And, yeah, he's extended his lead on GC to 57 seconds to Pogaccio. We'll talk about that in a second why I think that is actually really pivotal, that that time gain he made today. Lopez moved into third on GC a minute and 26 seconds behind Roglic. Port is fourth. Three minutes back, so there is a 90-second gap, oh, 100-second gap even, from third to fourth, from Lopez to Port. Yates, same position, fifth, three minutes back, and 14 seconds. Uran drops three positions to 324. Landa is actually in the same position, seventh, 
three seconds behind Uran, Mars still eighth, Dumoulin still ninth, and the eternal Alejandro Valverde is moves into 10th on GC, nine minutes and 31 back. So Movistar, obviously the strongest team in the race. Um, they've got also two riders in the top 10 on GC. But also, just, just think about this for a second. The 15th rider on GC is 30 minutes back on stage 17. That is a massive time gap. And I don't have like a historical reference point for that, but from people have been saying that is that is a big gap already and just shows how hard this tour really is. So, yeah, any other thoughts, Benji, from you on this stage? Were Bahrain, McLaren, are they, what's the mood going to be like in the team bus from them after the stage? Well, I think they had a plan and they knew that it would have been really hard to get something out of it. And it always sucks if it doesn't happen. And today I think they can say that their plan did not really work. The good thing that I see in it is that he didn't drop any positions. So he's basically still in the same position as he was yesterday and did not lose any positions, but he's not going to be overly happy and a bit depressed even if we know Mikel Landa a tiny bit. Now about Valverde, you said it, the top 10. I feel like it's a bit like when Zubelia in the past always got himself into a top 10 without being properly seen on screen, very anonymously diving into the top 10. So that's pretty cool to see. Now, I also want to mention the gap between Lopez and Port. It's an important gap. It's 40 podium. One minute and, well, a solid 40 seconds, as you said, 100 seconds. I think that Port is going to need a decent time trial for it. Lopez is not a great time trialist. He's not a terrible one either. I think in Algarve, he got top five or something in 2020 in a time trial. Maybe that means his time trial got better. We don't know because we only have one result to base upon this year. So it's a bit of a fetch in the dark. But if Lopez rides this like he did as Algarve TT, then Richie Port is going to have trouble closing that down. But on paper, if we look at the consistency throughout years, Port is a better time trialist. So that's going to be a smaller gap, I think, after stage 20. And if not, it might actually switch around those positions. 100 seconds is a lot to make up in the TT, especially with the climb in it, especially with the way Lopez looks like he's climbing and his form at the back end of this race. Lopez truly peaking in this third week. Um, all irony aside, he is looking fantastic in this third week. So if I'm Port, I don't... If I'm Port and I really want to go for that podium spot, he's going to have to try something in the next couple of stages, uh, well, stay the stage tomorrow, really. Um, that's it, probably the stage tomorrow. Um, but I want to really I want to really talk about that gap between Roglic and Pogacar, out from 40 seconds to 57 seconds. And I think that's really important, that gap, because 40 seconds, if I'm Primoz Roglic, if I'm Jumbo Visma, if I'm Richard Puga, the Jumbo Visma directors, I'm not sure they would be sleeping that easy the night before the TT. Like I'm, mathematically, I'm sure they'd have every reason to be confident. I haven't done the maths yet on the on the TT. I've got that video coming, but I know the flat section, as Benji mentioned the other day, is longer than the Slovenian national champ, so they're not exactly a like for like comparison. But still, forty seconds. That's a couple of bad corners. Maybe not having the you know. Just missing 0.1, 0.2 watts here or there on the climb. That could be made up. But now at 57 seconds, a full minute with the length of the flat in that TT, I feel like that does actually make a fair big difference, at least in my mind. Maybe that's irrational, but that's a big margin for two riders that, yeah, Roglic is on paper the better time drivers. Um, so do you think it makes that big a difference, Benji, or do you think do you think Yamut and Consequently, then, do you think Yama Visma will be ha- perfectly happy to ride very defensively tomorrow? I think if we take this gap to Plage Valfi ITT, Roglic wins the Tour de France. And I think the only place where Roglic can really lose it from this point onwards is one of the parts on the profile of tomorrow. We'll go in-depth in it in a second here, but there's a small section on top of the Plateau de Glia climb. And it's not a climb that peaks. It's a climb that has a plateau on top. And there's gravel sections, and we know from history that we've got punctures there. And if he gets a puncture there, then it can turn bloody. But outside of that, it's going to be really tough. Even with a puncture in the time trial, it will be hard, I think, because 
Well, 40 seconds was like already a bit far for me. I wanted Pogacar on like 20 seconds to 10 seconds to even remotely have a chance to get past Roglic. Then I don't believe that this is a remote possibility if this gap goes to the time trial at all. Yeah, I, I agree. Mathematically, 40 seconds was still fine. I just, I kind of had that ir- maybe irrational fear of the Roglic TT membrane stage uh, in 2018 Tour de France. And yeah, and I'm sure yeah, maybe Jumbo Visma fans had that too. I think they'll be a lot more ha- like comfortable with that 57 second gap. One last thing on this stage, I think we've done a pretty good job um, wrapping up what happened. Obviously, it was the breakaway got brought back, but from that breakaway, before the stage had even finished, before the, the breakaway had even been caught, Julian Alaphilippe was awarded the most combative rider of the day. And I know it sounds like stupid to get so mad about something like this, but me and Ben, or I'll, I'll let Benji speak on it, I was fucking furious because it's not a joke like prize. There's actually, there's still money involved. There's still recognition for it. And, but more importantly for me, awarding Alaphilippe the most combative rider prize when he had sabotaged that breakaway multiple times with boneheaded attacks, which he was doing deliberately in order to get the most combative prize because he knows knows they award it for just stupid regular attacks which have no int- and, and wagging his tongue out when he's not even trying to get away. Like he's just playing up for the TV and the cameras. And Izagir was like, mate, you're hampering our efforts to actually win the stage. Like we're trying to do a job here and you're just playing a clown. And then he gets rewarded for that. Whereas Carapaz... He had the gap brought back by Bahrain to like 18 seconds on that climb. He could have given up and he extended it again to like 45, 50 seconds. And there were part, there was like seemingly when all hope was lost for the breakaway, Carapaz was four to one with like six Ks to go when he went clear because he was looking that good and he buried himself on this stage after being in the break yesterday. So. Yeah, rant over. I'll let you take over, Benji. First of all, I like Alaphilippe. So in general, I'm not against Alaphilippe. I like it that he spices up races, and he certainly has done so on stage to win stuff in this Tour de France already as well. But genuinely, his attacks during this Tour de France have been as effective as eating pasta with a spoon. It just doesn't work. He doesn't get away from people, and people can just stay with him. So he's not in the form that he was previously, and... That does not necessarily mean that he does not deserve the combativity if he attacks a lot on a stage, but today he was in the breakaway with Jorge Izaguirre and Carapaz. Carapaz basically attacked the whole climb to try and drop Alaphilippe and Izaguirre, and he did that with both of them on the final climb. So there's a clear winner to this combativity prize today, and it is not Alaphilippe, it's Richard Carapaz. It's twice in a row, but that should not matter. And additionally, the reason that I think that they gave it to Alaphilippe is because there's one guy that was in a red car today that was President Macron of France. And I think that they wanted to settle him up with a French guy on the podium because he was going to give that combativity prize to, well, the person who won it. And today he was able to give that to Alaphilippe. So I'm going to go with the conspiracy theory that they decided to go for Alaphilippe for that exact reason, because they gifted it the moment that Carapaz had already dropped Alaphilippe. Jorge Izaguirre was still with Carapaz, I think, at that point. So, in general, he did not deserve it, and he should not have gotten it, because this is not a prize that you just give away. This is actual money backing it, and it's also important for the riders. So, yeah, I'm salty about it, but unfortunately it's like this, and I don't like it. I guess it's two different people, right? So people say, oh, UCI ASO are in cahoots with French riders, and then we had Alaphilippe getting penalised out of the yellow jersey. But it is two different groups. UCI Commerces gave Alaphilippe that time penalty. So UCI, yeah, probably impartial. Um, I'll give them the benefit. Yeah, I, I think they're, they're fine on that count. I don't think they have some massive French bias. ASO or Jalabert or whoever's awarding the prize, <laughs> when Macron is there, uh, I'm not so sure as well. I think Benji's probably right on that. So, yeah, I, we've obviously gotten just very angry about the comedy of prize, but don't have the competition or award it if it's going to be a complete sham. 
because yeah, this is the Tour de France. This is yeah, like Richie Carapaz is putting putting it all on the line. So real shame that he wasn't able to go onto the podium to collect that. He deserved it today. And yeah, and I, I don't want to see silly behavior being rewarded, like attacking and just sabotaging their own breakaway. But anyway, moving on to tomorrow's stage, that's enough whinging. It was still a fantastic stage today. Um, it did live up to my expectations. Tomorrow's stage from Maribel to La Roche-Ferron, 175 kilometers. And it's the longest climb of the day is the first climb. So there's an uphill, like a rolly start for 25.5 k's. There's a intermediate sprint with just 13.5 k's to go, well, 13.5 k's into the stage, and that suggests to me that breakaway will not go uh, for that first part. We'll get to our predictions in a second. Then they do the Category 1, 20 kilometers long at 6%, Cornet de Rosalon. Then a descent. Then it's Category 3, 3k's at 7%. Then a descent. Then another Category 2, the Col de Cés, 15k's at 6.3%. Then another descent. No pla- no no valleys, by the way, yet. Still descending or going uphill. Then the Col de uh, Arrivi, 7.1 k's at 6.8%. The easiest Category 1 climb I've ever seen. Is that a mistake? Because, anyway, that looks like a mistake because they've got the Cat 1s and Cat 2 switched around. Then another descent. And then that uh, Glier climb. It's apparently listed as an HC climb. I don't know how. It doesn't look... Uh, it's pretty steep, actually. 6.1 k's at 11%, it's saying, in paths. And then apparently a gravel section there, as Benji said. Then another descent, then 6 k's at 4.5%, and then a descent into the finish. So I've just I've just said descent and climb a lot. What sort of stage is this Benji, and what sort of stage, like what sort of riders does this suit? This reminds me of the final stage of Paris-Nice, because those have... It's usually shorter, but those have a lot of climbs that are not necessarily the largest climbs, but they are all together and you don't really have a flat section throughout the parkour. Now, this Monte de Plateau du Clier you were talking about at 6.1 kilometers at 10.9%, it's a steep thing. It's 11 to 12% the whole time around. It is going to have people attacking on. I can vouch for that genuinely. I feel like we're going to see GC stuff happen on the stage, I hope. But it's going to be tough because you've got that Plateau de Glier. And after that, you've got a downhill towards a climb that is not necessarily a pretty big one. That 4.4 percentage, 5-kilometer climb, the last one of the day. So in general, I think we're going to see a very open battle on the Comet de Rosalon. The first climb in regards to a breakaway. Potentially people that send people forward. I would be thinking about Astana with Lopez, Landa maybe with Abubao and such. Because Landa will have to try something random. He's in 7th, so who's happy with the 7th place? I'm not. And additionally, he's going to lose places most likely with his time trial skills. Now, the intermediate at the start, it is higher than the starting point. I don't necessarily think that it's going to be too terrible for Bennett. But I think there's going to be a lot of people trying to go into the breakaway. But they might, well, be closed out a bit until the proper start of the Comet de Rosalon. So... I would not be surprised if we did see the breaks happening just on that climb. But I think this is going to be a pretty good stage. I generally think so. The only thing I'm worried about is that the last portions are not hard enough to make differences in GC. Uh, I don't know. I don't think that Roglic is going to lose time on this one. I'd rather think that we'd see Lopez try something again on the Monte de Glier. And Bogacha maybe wants to try and do something again. He's in second, but... Well, one thing that I noticed... Bogacha went for, I think, eight points or something on the first climb of the day today, the big one. And on the Madeleine, he took that. Now he's leading the KOM classification, I think, in general, which means that he's got three points on Roglic. If he attacked for that on the Madeleine, a tiny attack, but it was there, he's going to care about KOM. I don't think anybody else really has an opportunity like Hola and such unless they go in the break and take every single one of these climb tops. So it's going to be a tough battle for KOM. Who do we see for that? Maybe Roland, maybe Cosnefroy again, but Cosnefroy most likely won't be getting over the Comet was alone in one piece, so I don't see that happening. But Nance Pitez is still in that top six and such, so everybody's roughly in, on 35 points in regards to people that go into breakaways. Well, if we look at Pogacar and Roglic, they're on 66 and 63. So 
yeah, if GC guys go over the last two climbs first, then, well, they hate she climb first because I think Monte de Plateau de Gliere is going to be 20 points then if it's HC, which means that, well, it's going to be the most important one of the day. Before that, you've got 27 points to gain. That is most likely not going to be enough to get over Pogacar and Oglitz. So I think that Pogacar might be just trying to secure an extra jersey like subtly behind everybody's backs and try and get this KOM as well next to his white jersey, which is a bit, yeah, it's a bit special that someone who's in second in GC also cares about the KOM jersey, but it's cool to see because he's young and he's eager to get everything. In regards to GC, yeah, I'm not sure where they're going to create the gaps. I think that Glier climb is going to be what matters. And as I said before, the gravel section on top, what will happen there? I have no clue. Hopefully we don't see like, the Tour de France being decided by a massive puncture or something. That'd be kind of lame, but yeah, it might happen. So let's be ready to watch what happens on that one. Yeah, I think Jumbo Visma will be very happy to let a breakaway go tomorrow. They should be at least. If I was them, I'd say, yeah, I, I'd, I'd let a break get 10 or 15 minutes. Favourites for the stage, probably Hershey, to be honest. Yeah, uh, well, I think Hershey's one of the favourites. These are not my picks, by the way. I'm just saying who they are. If if it goes into the if, – if GC Group is actually leading the stage and there's no breakaway, it'll probably be all the usual suspects, Pogaccia and Roglic. It's a descent finish and then a descent into like a flat section. So, yeah, I'm not sure someone like Miguel Angel Lopez will be able to gain too much time tomorrow. Port's not a very good descender, so – I don't I don't really see how Port can gain time tomorrow unless he did some sort of really long-range attack um, on, I don't know which climb. None of them are particularly steep. And Astana have got Izguirez and Tejada, so they look probably a little bit stronger maybe than Elisande and Trek. Um, or there's not too much of a difference there in terms of domestiques. But yeah, I think a break will go. Maybe Cam is a little bit cooked now after being in the break two days in a row. Sharkman, I think, will try and get in the break, although yeah, it's a long Category 1 climb to start the stage, so it'll be really interesting. Sure, for sure, Pierre Rolland will be trying to get in the break as well, and Sunweb will be sending multiple riders to try and get in the break. Um, but yeah, who do you have picked for the stage, Benji? Well, I just think about my picks. Thing is, I have to pick Roland because I said that he was going to win a stage and it's basically the last one where he actually has a chance of doing it. So I'm going to say Roland because he needs to go into the break to secure KOM points. And after that, I hope he has enough energy left to keep it up. Nonetheless, I do believe that Lutsenko is going to be in the breakaway, but he might be too busy with securing a potential second spot for Lopez if they try something crazy to try and drop Pogacar somewhere. But it's going to be tough for GC, so I think that a break is going to win. I'm going to say Roland, but it could be quite a few other riders. Yeah, I think Hershey looks looks pretty good. Uh, maybe Kwiatkowski, depending on the pace they go on the breakaway. He's sort of taken the last couple of days off, though. So, yeah, I wouldn't, not too certain about Kwiatkowski. Um, it's hard to say because who will get in that breakaway? Will it, will it be a large enough group? It's, it's so much climbing that... Maybe just the pace of Yumbo Visma setting, like even even Yumbo Visma pacing at like five point three on these climbs, five point five, five point four even. Maybe that's even enough to bring them back. I'm I'm not sure exactly. The problem is right for these stages is that UAE aren't strong, so UAE can't come out tomorrow and do what Bahrain McLaren even did today. I don't think so. UAE won't come out and just drive it all day on these climbs on these three sort of the cat one the cat two and the cat one before then the uh the gravel section they're not gonna be able to do that i don't think at least i'm happy to be proven wrong so that bodes that suggests to me that there'll be a breakaway um and yeah i don't really understand why yumbo visma would have too much appetite in, in uh, chasing it down so yeah hershey looks pretty good and i would say alaphilippe as well but yeah, he's not looked that good, to be honest. Um, but yeah, Hershey or Danny Martinez, maybe. Although Danny Martinez hasn't looked good yet last couple of days. But yeah, I don't have a strong feeling on it, actually. I don't think I'll be I won't be putting any money down on it, unlike today. So they're the sort of names I'd expect to see there, maybe. And Sunweb have been really good tactically. But yeah, I don't think it'll be 
I don't think it'll be the GC group, despite maybe Pogacar launching it on that HC climb um, with or 35, 30Ks to go, 33Ks to go. Jan Zabuski was out of time today, and it's honestly a great sacrifice because Koka was at the back for B&B Hotel's Vital Concept quite a lot in the stage, and he was honestly looking like he would go out of time limit. And Dabuskira basically dropped back to him and pulled as hard as he could on the plateau sections and the sections before the last climb to try and get Kokar within that time limit. And it cost himself. Kokar came in time, I think, 20 or 30 seconds before the time limit went off. So holy crap, that wasn't time. And yeah, Jan Dabuskira, five minutes too late and he's out of the Tour de France, basically giving his Paris ticket away for Kokar to finish in Paris. So... Yeah, great work for the team. Honestly, it's a real teammate, that man. All right, F's in the chat for the fallen soldier, the Busherer. Cockard is maybe one of the most important riders for his team of any of the riders uh, in the Tour de France. Like, I think when you look at the percentage of wins that come from one rider, he's right up there. He wins almost over 50% of BNB's uh, wins, except they're not. He doesn't win at really world tour level. But uh, there's a few other races going on. There's the Giro della Toscana. There's Giro Rosa, Tour de Luxembourg. Benji and I are going to be honest with you. We've had to be focused on the Tour de France today, particularly when it was the Queen's stage. So we're not going to spoil them, um, apart from mentioning a safety issue at Luxembourg. We're going to recap those stages. Or, and I think the Coppa Stabatini tomorrow, the Italian one-day race. Toscana's a one-day race too. We'll recap them, I think, tomorrow. Um, so that I'm able to actually watch them and get my head around what happened. Um, but yeah, you wanted to mention... Actually, no, there was other one one thing I wanted to mention on the Tour de France. And just to describe, in case it's interesting for anyone, how... I don't, I don't know the rationale for... I think I'll let Benji maybe say or why Benji picked Lopez today, but why I picked Miguel Angel Lopez today and just my thought processes for picking him on Col de la Luz when he maybe wasn't... He isn't the best rider on GC here right now. And... First thing was, I thought Jumbo Visma were going to control the break to a reasonable extent um, because they hadn't they hadn't in previous days, and I also thought the riders that would be in that breakaway wouldn't be as fresh today. And given the profile of the stage, riders like Oss, Casper Pedersen, etc., the rulers who can extend the gap on the flat wouldn't get into that breakaway, so there wouldn't be the breakaway wouldn't be able to get that 10-minute gap. And that's sort of what happened. The breakaway riders that were there were the ones that were there in previous days. Kamner dropped on Madeleine because he was really tired and there were no rulers or other helpers, sort of multiple teammates in that break. Secondly, Jumbo Visma were pacing. They didn't let the gap go above 5 minutes 30. The minute you saw that happen, you knew that the breakaway was very, very low chance of winning. Now, why I thought Lopez was going to win the stage or was a very good chance to win the stage. Obviously, if he was $2 before the stage, I wouldn't be picking him. But the reality was he was like, I don't know, 14 to 1 or something. So that I thought that was crazy because it's a combination of two things. He was looking like, and maybe he is, one of the best climbers in the world for a one-hour effort up to altitude in the third week of a Grand Tour. The legs we saw from him in previous stages were oh, just as good well, just, yeah, on stage 15, um, just as good, if not better, was it stage 16 when he gapped Pogacar? I think it was stage 16, sorry. As as Pogacar and Roglic, and that was below altitude. So then with this long effort up to Col de la Lose, with these really steep pinches, given how small he is, really small guy, um, I thought he was on, he was about at Roglic and Pogacar's level. He was about at their level. And the really t- real turning point then is, Okay, so what happens if Lopez attacks in the in the last two kilometers? I didn't think he was going to attack that early, but what happens if he attacks with 1,500 to go? Does Roglic have to chase him? No, he doesn't. Does Will Pogaccio want to chase him? I didn't think he would. I mean, he they were trying to in the end, but when the when he initially attacked, did I think they would both snap onto his wheel and be like, holy shit, it's Miguel Angel Lopez who's five seconds behind us on GC and he's going to beat us in the time trial? No, it's the opposite of that. He's behind and they know they can beat him in the TT. So then you're feeding that into, okay, so he's going to get a gap. And if he does, which we saw, he got a 10-second gap straight away, he's good enough to hold it, which is what happened to him and Roglic. So that was all. That was my start-to-finish thought processes for the Lopez pick. 
maybe it sounds a little bit convoluted, but I just wanted to say that's how I thought the stage might happen. Um, I haven't done that for tomorrow's stage because I don't really have a good handle on what will happen. I think it might be anything could happen. So, yeah, sorry to interrupt uh, with my stream of consciousness, Benji. If you, <laughs> I think you had some safety news from Luxembourg, which was kind of good to see from my perspective. What happened at Luxembourg was basically that they had safety issues on the road because the organization didn't close down the race well enough. We had on stage one that in the last five kilometers, there were buses parked in the last five kilometers on the road, cars everywhere. And I think that the major story about stage one was that for the Ajdezer team, they had Ignatas Konovalovas, that's FDG, not Ajdezer, but Ignatas Konovalovas was behind the peloton about five minutes after working all day for his team. And what is the most annoying part about it is that within the five minutes of the peloton reaching the finish line and Ignatas finishing, they opened the roads already. So this man was left on an open road with traffic everywhere to try and get to the finish line. And the worst part about it, he was stuck on a red light and lost another seven minutes at that point, which is a horrible story for a cycling race that is in the month where safety has become such an importance in cycling. It's like they don't even care about it. And now today, the follow-up of that is the fact that the riders... Also, at the start of today's stage, noticed a lot of problems because, well, according to Jacopo Guarnieri on Twitter, he said, literally, so here's what happened this morning at the Skoda Tour of Luxembourg. We started the race with the director car in the peloton. After four kilometers, a race car, unknown driver at the moment, decided to overtake the peloton in full speed in a narrow road while all the attacks were on. And additionally... Jasper Philipson almost went down. I don't know how he managed to survive. This is definitely not okay. Then we reach an intermediate sprint at 18 kilometers. Just after a car from a secondary road just came at the stop. Looks left, free road, and drove straight into the direction of the peloton. Luckily, nobody got hurt there. But they basically decided, I think under the lead of Jan Bakelons, who pretty much controlled things for the peloton and stepped up to the race director and such. And they basically said, well... In these conditions, we're not going to continue. And they did a strike, a rider strike in the race, which is amazing because they're coming up for their rights of having a safe race environment for, well, their cycling happening. And it kind of sucks to hear these stories because you, you're in an age where safety is so important. I said it already, but yeah, it, it sucks to hear stories that this is still not being noticed after and it's basically being neglected even. And in the end, the strike got closed down because they agreed to ride neutralized to the last circuit. They did that circuit three times for about 50 kilometers. I won't spoil who won the stage, but from that point, there were no issues. But according to Guarnieri and such and other riders in the peloton, they haven't heard anything from UCI nor the CPA, which is the riders union, which is a bit harsh knowing that it's been an open story for like two days already. Maybe they're handling it behind the scenes. We don't know that. So I can't say much about it. But from what it looks right now, they're not looking after it enough. And the riders have no clue if it's going to be fixed tomorrow or not in the coming stages for safety because the races are not closed off properly. There are no people signaling dangerous points. There are no people stopping the cars. It's such a mess. And yeah, it's, it's an annoying story to end that. But that's basically it for Luxembourg. What's your take on that? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to credit the riders for taking a stand and saying we're not going to we're not going to put up this and neutralizing the stage. And maybe it's a little bit easier to do that with a race like Luxembourg um, compared to say the Tour de France or something. But yeah, credit to the riders, Jacopo Guarnieri. He's yeah the FTJ rider on Twitter, maybe the best lead out man in the world. He's been yeah very vocal about these things recently. He seems to have taken. Well, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe he just tweets a lot, but he seems to be have a little bit of a leadership role in these things. Um, he was talking about things the other day related to safety on Twitter. And, yeah, it's not good enough. The If the races can't provide a safe course, then there doesn't need to be races. Uh, then they don't deserve to put on that race. It's as simple as that for me. Like, Tour de Polonia, if I was the UCI, I'd be giving them a show cause notice to say, Prove to us that you deserve to be a world tour race and show us the steps you've taken 
to improve your safety measures at your race, given the incidents that have happened there. And yeah, like show your compliance with all the safety requirements that we have as the UCI. So yeah, it's on two people. It's these cash-strapped race organisers who say we don't have any additional money for safety, like to install like the safest barriers or whatever. Maybe there's an argument for that. I'm not sure. Um, Still not ideal. But having the red lights change and having drivers on the road at Luxembourg, that just seems to be mismanagement. That's not a money thing. Um, So that's that's a real shame. And hopefully, yeah, like we've had a pretty good Tour de France, I think with no like shocking incidents or anything like that. We've had no doping issues. Like it's been a good Tour de France from like a – this is a good sport perspective. It's just – it's often these other smaller races that have these safety issues that maybe go unnoticed, but it's good that the riders are taking a stand on it and they've obviously got Twitter and stuff to be vocal about it and, and capture our attention. So that's good. But that's all we had today. We'll keep it a round hour. Highest stage, highest elevation in the Tour de France so far this year. Not too much moving in GC, nothing crazy happened, no massive collapses. Um, but still an interesting stage nonetheless and a, a climb I hope they use in the future. Thanks for listening as always. If you do enjoy the podcast, make sure to give us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or if your podcast player allows it. Or subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast because, yeah, we're going to be doing more interviews, obviously, with uh, you know whoever's in cycling. Maybe I'm going to try and hit up the CEO of Flanders Classics this week. Uh, to organize an interview before Flanders after the tour finishes. And those sort of interviews we're going to be putting on and we'll try and record the video and put them on uh, the YouTube channel as well. But thanks for all your support. I know you're all enjoying the podcast and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Ciao.